Genesis chapter 42. Joseph's brothers brought to repentance. We're going to be considering repentance this evening. Very briefly, the story so far in the life of Joseph is that having been sold into slavery by his ten older brothers, he has, by the providence of God, risen to become the most important man in Egypt under Pharaoh, with responsibility, amongst other things, for storing up food during seven plenteous years and distributing it during during the seven years of famine that followed. What we shall be considering this evening in Genesis chapter 42 are Joseph's ten brothers being brought to repentance for their wickedness towards him at least 20 years after the event. Something that happened at least 20 years earlier. I say at least 20 years after the event, taking into account that Joseph was only 17 years old when his brothers sold him to Midianite merchantmen, having left him in a pit to die. That was their original plan, just to leave him in a pit to die. Then 13 years later, Joseph, who by that time, had uh, I don't want to go through the whole story again, but he was in prison serving time um, because of a false accusation against him that he made advances to towards his master's wife he was thrown into prison but anyway by what is clearly the the providence of God he was summoned to appear before Pharaoh and he was appointed to high office and he was given responsibility for storing up food supplies during those seven years of plenty And now in today's passage, the seven years of plenty have come to an end and the famine is in progress. And if you've been doing a bit of arithmetic while I've been speaking there, you'll see that that's at least 20 years in all. So Joseph, by this time, is 37 plus years of age. What we shall see in chapter 42 is the reunion of Joseph and his brothers, which was brought about by the famine. More precisely, it was brought about by God, who arranged the reunion of Joseph and his brothers by means of the famine. The famine was real, but God used it to bring together Joseph and his wayward brothers after all those years. Also, we shall see that God led Joseph's ten older brothers to repentance through their chastisement by Joseph and most of all by a divine work of grace in their hearts, resulting in them coming to an acknowledgement of the guilt that they had hidden away for such a long time. And isn't that the case with us as well, that we can hide our guilt but we can be sure our sin will find us out. God has given us a conscience and as we'll see in our our passage tonight, uh, their guilt, their sin found them out in their lifetime. But even if it doesn't, if somehow or other you manage to hide your sin, and we can be pretty good at that, we can suppress our conscience 
even though our conscience may accuse us day by day, and we, we perhaps don't sleep as well as we ought to, as we're hiding the sins. And even if you do get through life, hiding your sins, there is that day of reckoning. It's worth remembering that. Therefore, chapter 42 gives details of a very important time, not so much in the life of Joseph, because it's all—it's pretty much all been about Joseph up to now, except for the chapter where, you may recall, Judah, he, he fled, the he didn't flee, he left the family home, and he went with a, a Canaanite woman, and, and, and various things happened that, that, that perhaps should not have happened in his life. So this was a very important time in the lives of Joseph's brothers, who, despite their shameful behaviour towards Joseph all those years earlier, were, nevertheless, along with Joseph, the patriarchs of God's Old Testament people, the children of Israel. So they have a very important place in in Bible history and in God's plans ultimately leading to um, the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world and redeeming sinners. First of all, the circumstances that brought about the brother's journey to Egypt. Let's have a look again at verses 1 to 4. Now when uh, Jacob saw that there was corn in Egypt, Jacob said unto his sons, Why do ye look one upon another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is corn in Egypt. Get you down thither and buy for us from thence, that we may live and not die. And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren, for he said, Lest peradventure mischief befall him. people tend to look at one another when they're waiting for someone else to do something anyone other than themselves and we all do that don't we we all stand around or sit around looking at everyone else and waiting for someone else to to actually make the first move or, or to do something or everything Jacob saw his sons doing precisely that at a time when they were quite literally starving to death. And so he rebuked them for their inactivity and he ordered them to make the journey to Egypt to purchase food. However, Jacob kept his youngest son, Benjamin, at home, lest peradventure some mischief befall him. It sounds like he was mindful of the time that he sent Joseph to visit his brothers many years earlier when the brothers were feeding the the sheep in Shechem. Joseph never returned and Jacob did not want the same fate for his youngest son, Benjamin. It was fitting that Jacob did not send Benjamin on that journey to Egypt when you consider that Benjamin had nothing whatsoever to do with Joseph being thrown into a pit and then being sold into slavery. He was just a young boy at the time, at home with his father, when the other brothers uh, were in the field feeding the sheep 
and Joseph went to see how they were. Although we're not told, you'd have to wonder what might have been going on in the minds of the ten brethren as the ten brothers as they set off on that 250 miles or so journey from Hebron to Egypt. If they had somehow managed to bury and suppress any thoughts that they ever had about selling their brother into slavery after nearly killing him, that journey would have surely brought it all back to them. But what they would not have imagined was that they would be reunited with Joseph in Egypt. I can't imagine that ever came to their, in their thoughts, entered their thoughts. I say that because the life expectancy of a slave would not have been particularly great and it's reasonable to assume that they would have thought their brother to be dead by this time, as I say, it was at least 20 years on from when they sold him into slavery or at the very least he was slaving away somewhere and they would just not have imagined that they'd ever see him again. Secondly, the ten brothers unknowingly meet Joseph in Egypt. So we'll have a look at verses 6 through to 8. And Joseph was the governor over the land, and he it was that sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. I think we can forget any thoughts that we might have of Joseph, who was essentially the Prime Minister of Egypt, standing behind a counter all day, selling corn to hungry people. He sold the corn in as much his servants sold it on his behalf, no doubt at numerous centres within Egypt and also centres on the borders, uh, selling it to the foreigners coming to, to get food, such as Joseph's brother's. Yet amazingly, there he was, there Joseph was, when and where his brothers turned up to buy supplies to take home to Canaan. It simply won't do to put that initial, that initial meeting down to coincidence or down to luck, that Joseph just happened to be there when his brothers turned up to buy corn. The Prime Minister of Egypt, no less. The hand of God in what was unfolding could not have been clearer. And let me remind you at this juncture of something that I said several weeks ago. It always was God's plan for the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, and their offspring, the children of Israel, to sojourn in Egypt where they would multiply and eventually be delivered from their afflictions by the hand of God. It always was God's plan. We see that to be the case with the words that the Lord said to Abraham about 200 years earlier. In chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, the Lord God said to Abraham, 
as he was called back then. Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge and afterward they shall come out with great substance. The land was Egypt and the children of Israel were there to be precise. They were there for 430 years until their eventual deliverance by the Lord. And then they settled in Canaan, the land of promise. What we're seeing in chapter 42 with the famine and everything else is God making arrangements for the patriarchs to sojourn in Egypt. Nothing just happened by coincidence. Joseph recognised his brothers, but they didn't recognise him, which is understandable when you consider that the last time they saw him, he was just a lad. Also, far from being dead, or at the very least slaving away somewhere, there he was wearing the finest Egyptian clothes, clothes that befitted his high office, and he was speaking in the Egyptian language, in verse 23, we're told that he spoke to them by an interpreter. So he was pretending to be an Egyptian. Also, Joseph would have been clean shaven according to the Egyptian custom, whereas his brothers would have had beards. It may sound like a little thing, but I think that's a, that is an important thing. They would have seen him without his beard. It wouldn't have occurred to them that he was their brother. And for all the other reasons I've just said. As they bowed down before Joseph, he remembered the dreams that he had had about them bowing down and making obeisance to him when he was just 17. And now he was seeing the fulfilment of those dreams. Those dreams got him into a lot of trouble at the times. His brothers hated him and envied him. They envied him because his father gave him a coat of many colours. He was his father's favourite and they hated him when he had those God-given dreams and he told his brothers about those dreams, that they they would be bowing down before him. But we see it, the fulfilment of those dreams now. Thirdly, Joseph's treatment of his brothers. In verse 7, we're informed that Joseph made himself strange unto them and spake roughly unto them. What motivated Joseph to disguise himself and speak harshly to his brothers? Also, he threw them in prison for three days, according to verse 17, which I read earlier. Was it payback time? Time for sweet revenge? If it was, Joseph had the power to have them executed, quite probably, there there and then. But he didn't, unless he planned to have some fun tormenting them first. However, as the saga continues to unfold, it becomes abundantly clear that Joseph's desire was not for revenge, but for reconciliation. So, what was going on? 
making himself strange unto them and speaking roughly or harshly to them. Rather ingenuously, I think, Joseph extracted some information. It may not seem like a lot, but he extracted some information from his brothers about the well-being of their father Jacob and his younger brother Benjamin (coughs) before revealing to them who he was. That was quite important that he, he didn't reveal who he was to them straight away. And we see this to be the case in verses 12 and 13. And he said unto them, Nay, but to see the nakedness of the land ye are come. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. Joseph has accused them of coming into the land to to spy out the the weaknesses in their defences. Spies, foreign spies. And they would have known this is serious business. We're being accused of something really serious. And so they spill their guts out there and straight away they, they, they tell him everything he really wanted to know. His father's still alive and Benjamin, his brother, his younger brother, is still alive at home with his father. And also in verse 13 there, where they said, um, one is not. That was, of course, a reference to Joseph, who, unbeknown to them, they were bowing down to him with their faces to the earth. Had Joseph straight away come clean about who he was, his brothers, I don't know this to be the case, but I... This is, uh, it seems reasonable to assume that his brothers may well have feigned the death of their father in order to avoid any possibility at all of the truth of the wickedness that they had perpetrated all those years ago ever getting back to their father Jacob. As for Joseph speaking roughly or harshly to his brothers, it has already been pointed out that the Lord would use Joseph to bring about repentance in them and an acknowledgement of their guilt. As such, it was not a time for smooth words and catching up on, on the good times that he had with his older brothers, if indeed he ever did have any good times with his older brothers who envied him and who hated him. By way of application, all too often, erring Christians are smothered with kindness, aren't they? They've they've fallen into sin. And what do we do? What is the the temptation to do? Smother them with love and speak kind words to them. Mushy words. Instead of being, instead of speaking to them firmly and if necessary, having them disfellowshipped in order to induce a genuine repentance. And after that, a restoration which must surely be far more loving than just speaking soft, mushy words to them. One criticism of Joseph might be that he was not being completely honest. Don't know if you notice that. 
not entirely honest when he extracted information from his brothers about themselves and their father and, and brother Benjamin by hiding his identity and by speaking roughly to them saying, ye are spies to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. He knew who his brothers were. However, rather than judge Joseph on that matter, far better to leave that one with the Lord. Fourthly, the brother's confinement. Joseph, who was still hiding his identity from his brothers, gave them a test to prove that they were not spies. One of them would have to go back to Canaan to fetch Benjamin, whilst the other nine remained in prison. Joseph then had all of them put in prison for three days, as has already been mentioned. Those three days would have been a a time for some serious soul-searching, and although it would not have been at all pleasant for those men, it would have nevertheless been an invaluable part of the process of bringing about repentance, without which there would not have been any true reconciliation. On the third day after their confinement, Joseph said to them in verses 18 through to 20, This do and live, for I fear God. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house of your prison. Go ye, carry corn for the famine of your houses, But bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die. And they did so. You can see there, he's desperate to see his younger brother again, Benjamin. Did you notice the difference though? There was a change of plan. Nine of the brothers were to go back to Canaan to fetch Benjamin, with one remaining in prison. Instead of one going and nine remaining in prison. As for the reason for the change of plan, we're not told. But it has been suggested that if just one of the ten brothers had gone back to Jacob in Canaan, leaving the other nine in prison, (coughs) it's been suggested that their elderly father would have found it, it would have been too much for him to bear And that's not something that Joseph would have desired. He'd already lost one of his sons, Joseph. And if if just one of them had come back, and not all ten of them, imagine what that would have been like for the old man. The idea is that it would be far more bearable to to Jacob, for Jacob, if all but one of his sons returned to return from Egypt instead of just one of them. Something very special happened in that prison. The brothers were troubled by their guilty consciences. Just look again at verse 21. And they said one to another, We are verily guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. At last, they acknowledged their sin when they said, we are verily guilty concerning our brother. It took a famine, a long journey to Egypt to get some food and prison time for them to finally say those words after all those years. But it was worth it. 
in conclusion, amongst other things, what has been seen in Genesis 42 is that God used a crisis to put into motion a series of of events that would ultimately result in Joseph's ten older brothers admitting their guilt for something terrible that they had done many years earlier. Oftentimes, that is precisely what happens, isn't it? There's a crisis of some sort. In their case, the crisis was a famine. When it comes to people trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour from sin, their God-given faith never stands alone. By the grace of God, it comes with repentance towards God, whom they have sinned against. And that process of coming to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is often triggered by some sort of crisis or calamity. Although it doesn't have to be, does it? It's not always the case. You, 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 you hear these um, testimonies of people coming to faith and some of them really do go through a crisis. Various, various things, but it's not always the case. I say that from my own personal experience because at the time that God put me on a journey that brought me to repentance a genuine repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything was going pretty good for me. It was one of the high points of my life. There were no calamities or crises at the time for me. I was happy enough. I was nearing the completion of a degree course. I was quietly confident that I'd get a reasonable grade. Not as good as my daughter just recently got, but it wasn't bad. And that I had a prospect of a good career ahead of me. But then, for the very first time in my life, I began to think about God and my relationship, or rather my lack of relationship with my maker. So there was no crisis, but the hand of God was nevertheless drawing me to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I I could go on to say that the circumstances that actually led me um, to go to university or or to go to college, actually, four years earlier, I can see now, looking back, that that also uh, was by the, the providence of God and nothing else. The very idea of me going to college and university, something I'd never thought of doing in my life, but I just seemed to be on a journey And that journey took me to the cross. So, as I say, there was no crisis for me when I, uh, as God was drawing me to His Son. Anyway, one thing led to another until. I'm still talking about my life now. One one thing led to another when I first started thinking about God and then a few months later I was being baptised as a repentant sinner trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. When you think about it, the Lord deals with lost sinners in various different ways, doesn't he? Some he is pleased to save through some crisis 
such as a famine, suffering the loss of a loved one, becoming terminally ill, perhaps being a soldier in the thick of a fierce battle, whatever. Then there are those who become Christians when there is no crisis in their life. Maybe things are going pretty good for you or were going well for you when you became a Christian. Perhaps they have the gospel brought to them by godly parents or at Sunday school or whatever and by whoever when they are children with little or no experience of any great calamities in their young lives. However, all who come to a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ do have something in common. They have all come to a realisation that they have sinned against a holy and sin-hating God. They have all acknowledged their guilt. They have all believed in the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he paid the price for their sin when he was nailed to a cross and lifted up to die. Without that repentance, there is no reconciliation with God. As the Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation. And if you're looking for a crisis really that does affect everybody who becomes a Christian, well that is it. Realising that you have sinned against a holy God. That's a crisis, isn't it? And that is when you cry up to heaven for mercy and trust in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as your saviour from sin. Therefore, your present circumstances are of no great consequence. You may be going through difficult and painful times. Then again, Everything may be, go, be go, may be going really well in your life. Either way, keep in mind that it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. The bad news is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that the wages of sin is death. However, the good news is that God is merciful to all of you who call on him in truth, acknowledging your guilt as a repentant sinner. He will hear your cry. He will save you by his grace through faith in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.